Hello there, listeners. It's Susie Nui from the Australian Society of Anesthetists here, and welcome to episode 77 of our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. I thought it was time to visit another part of our beautiful and vast country. This time we are adjusting the theatre lights, get it, and shining them on orange in New South Wales, which is on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Nation. It just so happens that we've visited the Wurundjeri Nation in this podcast before, in episode 71, where I chat with Dr. Kate Drummond from Aubrey Wodonga. Anyhow, in this episode, I am chatting with ASA member Dr. Charlie Warren, who originally comes from England and has found himself happily settled in Orange. We chat about the bustling food and wine scene there, raising children, and how easy it is to balance work life and life outside of work. Of course, we find out more about the anaesthetic department and what life looks like there as an anaesthetist. Okay, let's take a trip to Orange together. Thanks for giving up some time this morning. It's a pleasure. So, speak to me like I know nothing about Orange. Tell me where it is, what's it like, what's the climate like? Okay, Orange is in the central west of New South Wales, which again means nothing to some people, but it's about four hours drive west of Sydney over the Blue Mountains, only about 240 kilometres from Sydney, but it does take a while to get up and down the mountains. Orange is a city of about 40,000 people in terms of a health region. It's in the western New South Wales local health district, which the three main towns or cities and therefore hospitals are Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo. They're all within your LHD? Yes. And then there are three similarly sized cities, each with a base hospital. And the actual health district is enormous. The size of Germany, I think we were told in our induction, it's a huge area. And as a result, in order for people to come to any of the major cities, if you live from a long way away, then that's a pretty big distance to travel. Bathurst and Orange are actually remarkably close. They're only 60 kilometers apart. And then Dubbo is another 100 and something kilometers northwest of Orange. But then the majority of our region is further west still. So it's a big area. Yeah. I suppose we'll focus on the health side of things because we're talking about that. Out of Orange, Bathurst and Dubbo, which one would have the bigger hospital? So Orange and Bathurst are very similar size cities, of which the hospital in Orange provides more subspecialty services than Bathurst does. Dubbo is the biggest city and does have the biggest hospital and drains the biggest area of the region and has certainly a busier obstetric unit than Orange. But both Dubbo and Orange provide similar things. It's one of those issues that you're in a huge area and you've got two hospitals that kind of do roughly the same thing, of which there's a lot of parochiality in the region. And each city and each hospital thinks that they're the flagship hospital for the region. But realistically, we provide similar services. Orange, until very recently, was the only regional trauma centre. Dubbo is now a regional trauma centre as well as Orange which is actually good for the region because due to the trauma protocols, if you were a distance out of Dubbo, you were supposed to pass Dubbo and come to Orange, which doesn't make geographical sense if you're west of Dubbo and then to fly over Dubbo and come to Orange. So Dubbo's further inland than Orange? Further inland, yeah. So it's northwest of Orange. Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo are almost in a line, but not quite. Bathurst and Orange goes east to west to Orange and then northwest to Dubbo. I see. 
And given that it, you cover such a large geographical area, if you are getting trauma patients, are you looking at receiving patients that have had quite a long extrication and transport time to get to your health service? Yes, that can often be the case. We're lucky enough to have a rescue helicopter based in Orange. And certainly in the midst of the COVID crisis, one of the Westpac helicopters from Hunter, New England was relocated to Dubbo. So the retrieval services are fantastic, but having worked both in Sydney as a retrieval registrar and then out in Orange as a consultant, the retrieval times can be huge. And you'll often see somebody who has ruptured a spleen out in the back of Burke, and really they get a trial of life because it will be four hours minimum after their accident that they will arrive at a regional trauma center. It'll often take an hour or so to fly to where you're going before you see the patient and then fly them an hour back to where they're coming. So the times and distances are huge. And if you have only ever worked in a metropolitan setting, it really, it's very difficult to comprehend that you can receive major trauma so long after the incident. Mm. I'm an EMST instructor and I once did an EMST course and one of the other instructors was a GP from Burke. (laughs) And it was really like, when you all talk about being from the back of Burke, guess what? I'm from Burke. It's very difficult to comprehend. And I think even in a base hospital setting, you forget how privileged we are and how incredible the facilities are in our base hospital compared to the small hospitals that we so heavily rely on in our region to provide that initial care. And you've got mostly GPs, often locum GPs, who have to be GPs during the day and then run the small hospital and do everything. They've got to be emergency physicians. They've got to be obstetricians. They've got to do it all. It's very humbling when you realize what they do and what they can offer and how much on call they do because they're about the only person that does provide that. Absolutely. So you mentioned Orange does obstetrics and what other clinical services? We'll talk elective to start with. There's now eight general surgeons on the general surgical roster, or there will be in the middle of next year, which is great. They'll do general surgery as well as often have their own subspecialty interests. So we've got breast and endocrine surgeons, upper GI, colorectal. Those are the major subspecialty groups that we cover from the general surgical point of view. We have urologists. There should be three urologists. We're now currently down to two but again, hoping to get back up to three next year. ENT, we provide, there's three ENT surgeons. We have obstetrics and gynecology. When we moved to the new hospital, which was about 10 years ago, I think we did about 500 deliveries a year. And now we're consistently over 1,000 deliveries a year, which is... Pretty sizable. It is, and it's, it's reflective both of the growing population itself but also the type of people that are moving to regional towns are young professionals and the sort of people who do have children and the relative reduction in deliveries that are happening in the smaller sites. And then so the more complicated, higher BMI patients with comorbid conditions, they'll often now deliver in the base hospitals rather than out in the smaller hospitals. So that's obstetrics. We also do a lot of orthopedics, and it's an interesting one. We've got both the elective and acute orthopedics. Elective orthopedic surgeons, there's five who are based at Orange. And then there's two guys based out of Bathurst that then between them, they run the on-call service. So that's a very busy service. And that provides a huge service for over 100,000 people, the acute orthopedics unit. And with one emergency operating theater, there's a lot of fight for floor space between the emergency general surgery, emergency orthopedics and obstetrics. Is there a perioperative or a pain service in Orange? So we have a pain service. It's run by a single anesthetist at the moment. 
and he's will be retiring in the next few years, I imagine. And it's going to be interesting to see how we go as a hospital to fill that gap. But hopefully we've recruited somebody who is keen to at least do part of the work. But again, I think one of the recurring themes that we might have through this is the fact that younger anaesthetists, and I'm going to include myself here, as a younger anaesthetist in my mid-40s, where to be the single person doing anything is tricky and less likely to be able to recruit to that sort of a position. Perioperative service in the department, we have people that have their own portfolios and one of which would be the pre-admission clinic, which really is our perioperative service. We don't have any provision to provide a dedicated perioperative service in the hospital. Do you guys go between the different campuses, between Bathurst and Dubbo? So I I think that if I was going to run a utopian district, then we should. But (laughs) one of the things that I think does need to change is the parochial nature of the hospital's Whilst I think we officially have an LHD contract, we basically only provide services to the single hospital. And how big's the department in Orange? At our biggest, a couple of years ago, we had 16 on the on-call roster, which was superb. And that really is what we aspire to being again. We've had a couple of retirements and we've got a lot of anaesthetists who are in the 55 plus age group. So we're down to 12. It does seem like it's a pretty decent on-call being one in 12, but We currently run a 24-hour on-call service, which when you've got one single emergency theatre, we don't normally finish till 10, 11 o'clock at night. You're pretty cooked Mm. in terms of all the external pressures that are on you. Would you be involved in the retrieval or movement of a patient to, say, a tertiary centre? No, that's one of the great things about the local retrieval services. They'll do pretty much most of that. We only have to become involved in the retrieval if we needed to help in their stabilisation in the emergency department or if there's no space for them after they've had their emergency surgery, in which case we'll look after them until they can be retrieved. But we don't provide a service for the intensive care unit. We have intensivists that will run that. And we've got a fantastic group of FASEMs that can pretty much run everything, which is great. So how many theatres are there? So we've got five theatres, five operating theatres and a procedure room. I suppose this is other things that that we provide. We provide the only ECT service in the whole of the district. There's also a 24-hour cath lab. Wow, 24-hour. Yeah, it's, a, it's staffed during the day, but we'll do emergen- emergency caths. There's an interventional radiology service as well. And as I'm sure you know, everyone in Asia is feeling the pressure of the fact that whilst there's only five theatres, you often need five, six, seven anaesthetists to be in the hospital on a single day to basically do everything. When we've got ECT and the pre-admission clinic, paediatric and adult MRI lists. We've reached a stage where just having an anaesthetist in each theatre doesn't provide all the services that the hospital requires. One of our hopes is that our area management will understand the need for us to have a duty anaesthetist, which we don't currently have, who could actually fill many of those roles. Because at the moment, it's down to the emergency theatre or somebody who's just not working that day, which is often after you've been on call, to fill the gaps of taking somebody to an urgent MRI or the cath lab or do an interventional radiology case. Yeah, always looking around for someone. Yeah, and there just aren't any spare bodies. And I think it's a problem everywhere, the fact that anaesthetists are being pulled to go and work in different areas of the hospital, which is absolutely fine, but that needs to be recognised and staffed accordingly. Definitely. It sounds like you've got good support in the emergency department and in the intensive care unit. Yes. I can't actually tell you the number of FTEs, but there's certainly a good number of FASEMs and they're all very good and very supportive But again, they're running a busy emergency department and the patient needs to go urgently to the CT scanner or the cath lab. We've got one who's due to be in the 
emergency theater and there's sort of Mexican standoff as to who's going to take the patient to the cath lab. And again, it's difficult because everyone says, I can't. It's widespread. We can only be in one place at the one time, especially you can't give two anesthetics at the same time. And I think one of the other things that we often have junior trainees here in Orange for a variety of reasons, certainly the rotating trainees, we have two trainees that come from Sydney, one from RPA and one from Concord. We'll often get first or second years. Certainly, we don't often get spared advanced trainees. And most of the locally employed registrars are people doing their introductory training, which often in in a bigger hospital, this senior registrar could look after a theatre or take a patient to the scanner or the cath lab. But that's one of our struggles. And we had a fellow this year who's going to stay on as a consultant. Oh, great. And continuing positions for fellows, that has been a real help this year. And when we do have a fellow, we really notice the fact that they can run a theatre. Hopefully we can persuade them to stay, which I think is something that we really want to encourage our registrars to do. And do you know how many years of training you're accredited for? So there's one year of training we're accredited for. So whilst we're accredited for one year, the locally appointed registrars only do six months because it's a job that's shared with working in intensive care or emergency And it's almost a bit of a historical thing because we know that there are lots of people that want to do their introductory training. And we as a department often feel that we would be better served and the hospital might be better served if we could have one-year trainees. But from the hospital's point of view, if they want lots of people to apply for jobs and to man the ED and the ICU, that's a trade-off that the hospital will do to make sure that the other departments are staffed. And some of the funding does come from the other colleges. What's it like there in terms of support within the region as well as from larger centres? One of the the things that we are really lucky to have in a smaller hospital is the fact that pretty much every single consultant in the hospital knows every other consultant in the hospital. I can ring the paediatric consultants and you know them personally, the obstetricians, you know the intensivists, and you can just ring them. You ring them and you say, look, I've got this, I've got that, and everybody's happy to help. I think that the difference between working in a big tertiary centre versus here, certainly it seems, is you'd often have registrar to registrar contact about tricky stuff in a bigger hospital, whereas here it's a consultant-led service, which is great. And whilst it can feel a bit claustrophobic at times when you're out at Woolies or just going for a, a bike ride and you see patients or colleagues, but it's, it does add to the collegiality of the work and then it is good. I think that you sometimes you probably forget as a trainee when you get sent out to the rural centres, you think all the consultants that are there are these rural people that have only ever worked out there. We've all come from tertiary centres. We've all trained in a tertiary centre. And so we do all have contacts and are certainly very happy to use them to call about tricky stuff. And people who do cross-pollinate, say, between specialties, there's often there's the crossover between anaesthetics and intensive care. We've got no one in the department at the moment who does that. But certainly the intensivists, they go to all sorts of different hospitals And they're very good for talking to about complicated patients because they're just always a wealth of knowledge about stuff that you've forgotten about. That's so true. I'm married to an intensivist, so I often tell him that he's the clever one, (laughs) certainly more up to date than some things. What's it like there in terms of private work as well? So there's a huge amount of private work. There's a relatively high number of specialists in Orange of lots of different specialties, which means that as a result, there is lots of private work. There are actually more private theatres than there are public theatres in the city, which is, it's great. It means that there's lots of access to private work for both patients. And certainly it's a, a benefit of working here is that you can work publicly and privately without having to really go and search for work. In fact, that there's more work really than we can do. There are some anaesthetists that have decided to work privately only in the city, which has not been the done thing for a long time. And 
I think what you notice in a small city is the fact that it doesn't take much to upset the balance. And just a small amount of change can create a big difference. So we're searching for that at the moment in our department. And I think that the fact that we do have anaesthetists that are retiring, not in their hordes, but when you've got five or six anaesthetists that will be retiring in the next five or six years, unless you replace them, that's a pretty big dent in the service provision. And what we've seen, I think, in other hospitals, is that once you do become locum dependent regionally, then that's very difficult to change. All the anaesthetists in Orange are resident in town, yet that's not always been the case. Certainly Bathurst, which is I said, only 60 kilometres away, it's actually 60 kilometres closer to Sydney, which makes you think it probably should be able to attract people more easily. Mm. There's certainly not that many working in Bathurst. And Dubbo has done it. Dubbo with the new hospital development has done well to recruit. But I think that once you rely on locums, you rely on locums for quite a long time. And one of the things that is appealing for people to come to work in Orange is the fact that there are all the subspecialties and lots of people and lots of lists, lots of public lists, lots of private lists. And so we can accommodate lots of anaesthetists and kind of the more the merrier, really. (laughs) And is there a greater range of specialists in Orange than there are in Bathurst and in Dubbo? Is that the attraction, do you think? Yeah, there is. And I think lots of the surgical specialties are based in Orange. Orange and Bathurst are so close. But for instance, Bathurst doesn't have resident urologists, doesn't have resident ENT surgeons. And quite a few of the surgeons from Orange will go and work in Bathurst. And as a result, once you've got a critical mass of surgical specialties, then that's what attracts people. Also in Orange, we get visiting pediatric surgeons. They come from Westmead. We haven't branched out into thoracics or all that yet. And one of the things actually that we lack, and we're talking about what we do have, the region currently doesn't have a vascular surgeon. So we have relied for a long time on a surgeon who's just retired, who is a a general surgeon who did a vascular service. And so they've retired and you don't have general surgeons who do vascular anymore. That's old school, isn't it? Yeah, so much becoming an endovascular work. Somebody needs to make a decision, somebody who holds the purse strings as to where we're going to have a vascular surgeon because the region, as I said, it's the size of Germany. There's a large indigenous population living west of Dubbo with associated health issues with a big rate of diabetes. And so really the fact there's no vascular service or no local vascular service means that there's a huge need. And to send everyone to Sydney to have a progressed amputation, it's not... Huge imposition. Yeah, that's a big problem and we're not going to solve that overnight, but it's it's pretty clear that would be a really good thing to set up in one of those three hospitals. Um, I want to come back, if I can, to just finding out a bit more about Orange. Yes. So what's it like there? Like, what's the region like? Yeah, so I'm very biased. I'm English. I grew up in England and did my university in the UK. I came to Sydney for a year in 2004, met a girl from Orange. Nice which, to cut a long story short, I came back here as a consultant in 2013. And the long-winded bit about being English is the fact that of all the climates in New South Wales in particular, probably has a very similar climate to Tasmania because we're at 800 metres altitude. Didn't know that. Really associate that part of New South Wales as being cool. So the winters are cold, very cold here. Wow. How cold does it get? I think the lowest has been about minus seven since I've been here. So minus two, minus three over winter. It snows most winters in Orange. In the town itself? In town, yeah. I did not know that. So, And that's mainly due to altitude, so 800 metres altitude. Do the summers get hot, though, because of higher altitude? 
hot-ish. Normally, we don't have many days above 30. When we get above 30, we notice it. And because it is at altitude, it cools down at night. You don't have many nights that are hot and sweaty, which is lovely. The autumn and spring, they're the really lovely times. But again, the last couple of years, we've longed for summer because there hasn't been much warmth. The other thing about the altitude is the fact that this is a cool climate wine region. So Orange is gaining a reputation as a food and wine region, which is wonderful. Lots of cellar doors, lots of wineries and some beautiful restaurants uh, in town. It is obviously an agricultural region. In terms of agriculture, initially lots of fruit, lots of apples, pears, cherries, and then outside of Orange, more farming as we would know it, lots of, lots of sheep farms, cattle. And again, further west, you get the bigger properties and the cropping and further west still a lot of cotton, so out past Dubbo towards Warren and those regions. So you're at 800 metres altitude above sea level. Yep. You're not in the mountains, though. You're inland from the Blue Mountains. So you're on a highish plain. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm from Melbourne. From Melbourne, okay. But I grew up in Canberra, so I appreciate that altitude. So Orange and Canberra, it would be a similar climate, but I don't think it gets as hot in the summer in Orange as it does in Canberra. But again, it's, I think it's yep. all very similar. So if you drive up to the Blue Mountains, if you get past Penrith and go up through the Glenbrook and the, the foot of the mountains, and then you get to the top and then it's hilly and then you go down just a little bit into Lithgow which is the the sort of the first city you hit and then you're pretty much on a plane all the way through Bathurst and Orange and then as you go further west from Orange you descend off the plateau. Imagining it's foresty and rivers rather than big lakes? Yes so Orange is an interesting city in the fact that it's a ridiculous place to build a city because there actually isn't a river in Orange. So Bathurst and Dubbo have both got rivers, whereas Orange just has creeks, which has meant that we've had no problems of flooding over the last few months. But when it's dry, it does get dry. So we need decent catchment in the dams. There's not much native forest because it's mostly agricultural land. There is quite a bit of pine forest and then certainly the national park. So for instance, Mount Canobolis, which is just out of Orange, there are some decent sized national parks around but really the majority of the region is farmland. How do people get to and from Orange? So if I was going to go to Sydney for the weekend, I would drive. You can fly, but really in terms of door-to-door time, it's actually pretty similar whether you fly or drive. And there are flights to Orange now from Brisbane and Melbourne, which is great. It's not every day. It's a two or three a week to Brisbane and Melbourne. If I was going to go to Melbourne for a conference for a weekend, I'd fly. However, we're going to go to Melbourne for a holiday and we're going to drive. So it's about 10 hours drive to to Melbourne, four to Sydney. The trains run, but they're pretty slow, to be honest. Definitely quicker to drive than to catch the train. And is it trains only to and from Sydney or would there be ones to Melbourne as well? Not to Melbourne. The train has stopped at Bathurst, Lithgow and a few stops before getting into Sydney. And what's it like there in terms of recreational activities or life outside of work? So something that I love is the fact that I socialize pretty much with nobody who I work with, which I really like. Whilst I really like my colleagues and I spend a lot of time with them at work, I spend most of my time with people who I I do a bit of bike riding in my little bike riding group. There's a couple of winemakers, there's a, there's a farmer, there's a mortgage broker, there's a physio. Great mix. In fact, there are a couple of doctors, but I don't socialize with them 
because they're doctors, I socialize with them because we ride bikes together. So that's pretty fun. And lots of our friends are the kids' friends from school. So the kids go to the public school just two blocks away. And if I'm not socializing with my friends, then I'm socializing with their friends. Yeah, so recreationally, there's lots of good road biking and mountain biking in Orange. A lot of good ways to keep fit. I spend a lot of time in the garden. I'm a sort of a veggie grower and pickling and all that sort of stuff, which is good. So we live in town in Orange. There's an in-town, out-of-town divide. But we've hedged our bets and we've actually got a few acres about an hour away where we just go and hang out with a couple of dams and some bush. Oh, nice. Sounds lovely. Idyllic. And my son's just got a motorbike for his 10th birthday, which I know sounds very young. Oh, my goodness. But a good fun thing to do and to get out away from screens and away from people and to sit and have a fire and catch some yabbies and do all that sort of stuff. Beautiful. What's it been like in terms of job for your partner and schooling for your kids? Yeah. So my wife's a social worker and she's a mental health social worker. Oh, gosh, tough job. There's a big psychiatric hospital. So she works in the forensic mental health sphere. So for her, the sort of allied health front, there's a lot of work in Orange. I think that nowadays you don't often find partners that don't both work. And everybody at the moment in whatever industry you're looking at wants people to come and work. And I think that's the same all over mm. town, whether you're a, you're a chef or a barista or work in allied health, True. there is a job for you pretty much anywhere you turn up. There are some good industries around Orange for professionals as well. So there's the DPR, the Department of Primary Industries, I think it must have been about 20 years ago, relocated to Orange from Sydney. And so that's brought another big government agency that has a lot of jobs in the region. And to be honest, I think the biggest employer is Newcrest Goldmine, which is, so Kadia, sorry, it's Kadia Mine owned by Newcrest, which is, I think, possibly speaking out of term, but it might well be the biggest gold mine in the Southern Hemisphere, and which is a huge employer and provides a lot of wealth for the region. I think that us in the medicals here, we think the town is based upon the health facilities and, and all of that. But in fact, I would suggest that the, uh, the mine brings in more people and more money and more reasons for people to come than we do. <laughs> but I think that, that, again, it's a big employer of young people with money, which helps those other industries to work as well. So hospitality and food and wine industries go back to back with having young people employed in the town. And what are the schools like? The schools are good. As I said, we live two blocks from the primary school, from Orange Public School, which is wonderful. And the kids walk to school and walk home. And there are two high schools, Catholic High School, and there's also Orange Anglican Grammar, Orange Christian School, and Kinross. So the last three are the private schools. But there's plenty of high schools and lots of places for your kids to go all the way through their education. And certainly our kids aren't leaving Orange for their high school education. Not yet anyway, but I see absolutely no reason to send the kids away. I think that in the past, lots of people would have sent their kids away to boarding school. Yes. I went away to boarding school when I was little. That's why my mum says I I left England and came to Australia. I'm pretty happy to have the kids (laughs) educated close. And certainly we will definitely encourage our kids to go away to university you can go to university here in Orange. There's the CSU have got a campus here and they've actually just opened a medical school right. in Orange, which is fantastic. And I think that there's a lot of political charge to debating how to get doctors out into rural areas. But I think that it's difficult to convert somebody at the age of 25 or 30 to come and live in the country. But if they're from around here and you can educate them locally, then I think that'll go a long way to getting people to come and work in this part of the world, which... I think that 
a shameless plug for working here. The fact that, as I said, the kids can walk to school. I think I spend half an hour in the car a week. Wow. I certainly spend longer on my push bike than I do in the car, which is a really nice thing to do. Very envious. Yeah, yeah. As I said, we don't need to travel for schooling, for medical appointments, for anything really. Whilst it's a small town, there's a lot of services packed into a pretty small city, which is good. I think the only, I think if I was between the ages of 20 and 30, I don't think it would be the place to move to. Hometowns never are between the ages of 20 and 30. Everyone moves between those ages. Exactly. A colleague and I wanted to have a colleague to colleague discussion the other night so we said okay cool we'll put the kids to bed and then we'll go for a drink and it was 8 30 on a thursday night and the first pub that we went to said oh no we've shut the bar and i'm like what it's 8 30 on a thursday night and i've been here for 10 years i should know that but again with kids age 12 and 10 it's not really the sort of thing that you you do much of we eventually found a pub that was open so that was good you mentioned that you originally came from england yes and there's also a big indigenous community further west. What's the diversity like in Orange itself? My wife's got a, a good view on this, having grown up. She grew up in Orange. And when she left aged 18, and she's a social worker, so she's leftward leaning. She was very happy to see that when she came back as a 30-something parent, that Orange wasn't quite so white and middle class. I, I would still say Orange itself doesn't have a huge indigenous population. But it's certainly more multicultural than it was, but it does not reflect the populations that are in our metropolitan areas. Just thinking back to my daughter's year six graduation, very much majority of little white faces looking back at you. But my father-in-law, he's been now in Orange for 60 odd years. He's certainly said that he was relieved to see that Orange Public School does reflect more the population of Australia in general than it did when my wife was at school. But again, it's a pretty mm. s- slow process. And I think that certainly when we have the patients, particularly the older patients, can still sometimes, when we have registrars that look different to them, it's something that I find very, very challenging. I like to see myself as a relatively modern uh, human. And when you see a 70 or 80-year-old not wanting to really listen to what's being said to them because it's coming from a, an Asian or an African nurse or doctor, you find it it's a pretty challenging challenging situation to be in. Still happens in Melbourne too, I've got to say. Okay. But it's one of those things, because I grew up in, as I said, in England. I was from regional England down Mm. in in Dorset, down in the Southwest. And very similar challenges. I'm this white, bald male that that has never been presented with a challenge of being, even though I've come the whole way around the world, it's a very strange feeling when people who are Australian get spoken Mm. to in a way that's different to me. And I I find that challenging. It's not very common, but it happens. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, look, Charlie, this has been a really wonderful conversation. It's been really wonderful getting to know you a bit better. Is there anything else that you want to say either about Orange or living, working regionally? I kind of want to plug and say, come and work in Orange because it's a really lovely lifestyle and you can eat at lovely restaurants and educate your kids in the city and ride your push bike a lot and make me work less on call. That'd be great. But I feel that'd be a little bit strange of me to be begging for more people to come when actually there are other cities more in need of us. But is there anything else for me to say? I think one of the things that I have loved about living and working in Orange is the fact that because I don't spend so long getting to and from work, I'm able to take part in community things. So for instance, I can help out at the school PNC. I coach the kids' cricket team, all that stuff that I think 
whilst if I lived in a city, it doesn't mean that I couldn't do any of that. It means that when I finish work at 5.30, I can be at the cricket nets at 5.40, which is the time that we're supposed mm. to start. I think once you've been here for a while, you totally forget how wonderful it is to finish work and be doing whatever you want to be doing 10 or 15 minutes later. And it means that particularly at the private hospitals that often don't have resident night staff, it means that you can go in in the middle of the night if you have to. You don't have to pack a bag and drive an hour or an hour and a half in some cases. And so that is one thing that I absolutely love. Mm. And whilst I, I on purpose don't work every hour that I possibly can, the fact that I'm not in the car for six or whatever hours a week means that that's six hours a week for me and the family, which is fantastic and I love it. Yeah, I think many of us would love that if we could have it. <laughs> well, you, you can bring your husband and yourself. Orange would welcome you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. We might take you up on that. <laughs> How lovely. Thank you. Oh, well, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for giving up some time. Thanks, Susie. Uh, thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing about Orange as much as I did. It really sounds like a great place to live. And I also get the impression that there are plenty of jobs there. So if you are feeling a little bit tempted, then feel free to let me know. My email is podcast at asa.org.au and I can certainly pass your details on. If you do happen to have itchy feet, then the other place you could look is on the Australian Society of Anaesthetists Positions Vacant or Locum page. We've got jobs posted there from all around Australia and New Zealand, and every time I look at that page, I see new jobs being posted, so it is being updated all the time. Of course, I'll put a link to that page, as well as a link to episode 71, where I chat with Dr. Kate Drummond from Albury-Wodonga in the show notes. And yes, my email will also be there too, in case I can help with an introduction or two. In the meantime, I hope you are staying warm as we winter here in Australia. Once again, thank you for listening and I hope you're staying safe and well out there wherever you happen to be. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie Newt with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934 and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>